0: Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. In Ezekiel 28, you have uh, one, of, one of two main passages in the Bible that uh, give you a lot of information about the devil and about his, his fall. Uh, the other one would be Isaiah chapter 14. But um, in, in uh, Ezekiel 28, it, there's an address here. To the, in verse 1, you see it mentions the prince of Tyrus. And when you come down to verse 12, it talks to the king of Tyrus. Now we're going to start in verse verse 11, and then we'll come back to the the earlier verses there. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11 Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering the Sardius, Topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, The sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. And as you read that description there of of this individual that it calls the king of Tyrus, uh, you can see who it's who it's really talking about Uh, when it says in verse 13 that thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. That tells you that this is not just talking about a person on the earth, because when Adam and Eve fell, remember, God set cherubim with flame flaming swords to keep the way of the garden of Eden. This was an individual that had been in Eden. Now it's not talking to Adam, it's not talking to Eve. The Lord is the one that's speaking, so that kind of narrows it down for you who is really being described. Uh, it's describing here Satan, the devil. And and you see it describes Satan as he was created. It describes his wisdom. And I want you to notice that in verse 12. It, it says, Thou sealest up the sum. You're, he's just, he's just the, the fullness of everything. Thou sealest up the sum. It says he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And you see it describes his, his covering in uh, verse 13. It talks about the workmanship of his tablets and his pipes. And uh, the indication seems to be that that... Uh, Satan was created by God with the ability to make music. You know, music is a very powerful thing. Um, you know, most of us sitting here probably have more song lyrics memorized than we have Bible verses memorized, to our shame, right? Uh, but, you know, when you put something to music, it becomes very easy to, to memorize things. You know, they've, they've uh, found that with, with, even with people in very advanced stages of Alzheimer's, uh, often when they hear a familiar tune, they can, you know, they can relate to that and hum along with the tune, even though they may not be able to communicate in, in any other way. And music is just a very deep, powerful thing. And, and Satan is a master of music. Now, music can be used for good things. We, we sang songs of, of praise to God here this morning. But you see, Satan is created by God with tabrets and pipes, with musical instruments. And it calls him, in verse 14, the anointed cherub that covereth. Now, there's another indication that this is not talking about uh, just a, you know, a person, a, a human king of the city of Tyrus. Because the king of Tyrus is not a cherub. The cherubim are uh, one, of those, one of those class of, of the heavenly host that the Bible describes in places here in the book of Ezekiel, as well as in Revelation and other places. Uh, They don't don't look like what you might think an angel would look like. You realize that a lot of the the images that we have of these things come more from paganism than they do from the Bible. Uh, A cherubim cherubim has four faces, for instance. They have a a face of an ox and an eagle and a man and a lion. Um, And and they have, let's see, a cherubim have four wings, okay, and... um, but it, but it describes here, uh, again, this is Satan that it's describing here. You can, you can figure out from the passage. And it calls him that anointed cherub that covereth, that God had set him in that position. It, it says that he was upon the holy mountain of God. And, you know, you cross-reference that with some other verses that talk about the mount of the congregation. You know, there's a place in the heavens where the angels congregate. It's probably that place that's talked about in the book of Job when it says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and it says that Satan was among them. See, there's this place, this, this mount, and it says that he was there, that he had walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, and it says that, that uh, the Lord there' speaking to, to Satan says, "Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created." till iniquity was found in thee. Now, it calls him the king of Tyrus. And, you know, earlier in the passage, it mentions the prince of Tyrus. There's another passage here in Ezekiel where it does a similar thing with Babylon. It refers to the prince of Babylon, and then it refers to the king of Babylon. And the, the prince, we'll go back and read those, those uh, beginning verses of Ezekiel 28. The prince of Tyrus here is clearly the human king of, and Tyrus would be the city of Tyre. Kind of a, kind of a unique city. It's often mentioned, it's up to the north of Israel. It's often mentioned in connection with Sidon. A lot of times, Tyre and Sidon are mentioned together. And those were Phoenician cities, and the Phoenicians were, were seagoing people. Uh, in fact, the people of Tyre became, became very wealthy because they were the very first people to be able to navigate the Mediterranean Sea. So instead of, to, to go down to Egypt, for instance, instead of uh, taking a land route around the Mediterranean, they could navigate their ships. Across the Mediterranean to go to Egypt, they they established colonies in Sicily, in Carthage, uh, even even out into the in the Atlantic. You know, they went out of the Mediterranean, and so at Cadiz in Spain, they had a colony there. And uh, Tyre became very wealthy as a result because they could they could transport goods and they became merchants. Uh, the The city of Tyre uh, was. Was out on an island. Now today it's not on an island. But it was out on an island. And if you read the description here. Go go up to verse 1 of Ezekiel 28. As it's speaking to the prince of Tyrus. It says the word of the Lord came again unto me. Saying son of man. Say unto. Now here it's the prince of Tyrus. Thus saith the Lord God. Because thine heart is lifted up. And thou hast said I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, Hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit. And thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. You see, that city of Tyre was a was a very wealthy place but you see how it describes the the pride of the king of Tyrus there the king of Tyre and you know if, if we looked at other prophetic passages God describes how King Nebuchadnezzar the, the Babylonian king was going to come and And conquer Tyre. Now, uh, historically, Nebuchadnezzar never wound up conquering Tyre because they eventually subjected themselves to him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, God told Nebuchadnezzar that he had given all the kingdoms of the world into his hand. And God was going to judge Tyre. Part Part of the reason here was because Tyre was not subjecting themselves to that Babylonian king. And he came and for 13 years besieged the city of Tyre. Now, it's kind of hard to attack a city that's on an island, right? It was on an island. It had walls all the way around the, the uh, perimeter of the island. And various people at, at different times in ancient history tried to take over Tyre, and they were never able to. But eventually, God did use Alexander the Great to conquer that city. And the way Alexander did it, was he took, there, there's, a, there's a settlement on the mainland, okay? And uh, Alexander the Great conquered that. He took all the stones from that city and started building an artificial peninsula that went out to the island. And, uh, you know, that was the only way he could take the city. He, he basically built a built a causeway uh, out to the island so that he could get his armies out there and attack the city, and, and Alexander the Great, who, you know, if you're familiar with some of those prophecies about those uh, world empires that God said he would raise up, uh, Alexander the Great and the, the Greek Empire become sort of the inheritor of those things that God had originally promised to Nebuchadnezzar. But, but you see here it describes... The, really the pride of that king of Tyre. And when you, when you read the, the uh, pronouncement there upon the prince of Tyrus, there's one word that's used over and over again. It talks about his wisdom, right? You see it in, in uh, verse 3. It says, Thou art wiser than Daniel. In verse 4, it says, With thy wisdom. In verse 5, By thy great wisdom... In verse, um, there was another one there uh, where it mentions his wisdom. But over and over again, it mentions his wisdom. Now, the reason you have these two different pronouncements one against, it, it refers to the prince of Tyrus, who is the ruler of that city, and then the king of Tyrus, who is Satan himself. You know, all throughout Scripture, you have the indication that the powers of this world, the visible dominions, the visible powers of, of this world, behind them, there are spiritual powers. So, for instance, in the book of Daniel, uh, the, uh, you know, the angel comes and speaks to Daniel, and he tells him he has to go and, and battle with the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia. These are spiritual principalities. Right, and and uh, you know, I have no doubt that that when you look out at the powers of this world and the princes of this world, that there are spiritual forces behind what goes on in the world. Okay, and here as it refers to the the man who most men would call the king of Tyrus, it uses a lower term. It calls him a prince. I mean, who's higher, a king or a prince? King is right. And and it says he's the prince of Tyrus, the real king of that wicked city of Tyrus is Satan himself. He's the real one that's in control. In fact, the the prince of Tyrus here, it would be a type of a man who later shows up in in, uh, prophetic fulfillment called the Antichrist, who... Much like, much like uh, this Prince of Tyrus, it says that he gets his power and authority, the Antichrist gets his power and his authority from Satan. And so it's no wonder that the Prince of Tyrus here, his attitude toward God mirrors the attitude of Satan toward God. We aren't going to go there, but if you're familiar with Isaiah 14, where it describes the fall of Satan, and there's these five I wills. And he says that he will ascend into heaven. This is Satan saying he will ascend into heaven. And he says, I will be like the Most High. You see, that's that's Satan's goal is to be like God. And, you know, a lot of times we view Satan as being like the exact opposite of God. That's not what Satan's intent is. It's not to be the exact opposite of God. He says, I will be like the Most High. That's why it can be very difficult... Oftentimes to distinguish, you have to be very discerning to dis- distinguish truth from error. Because Satan will present something that is very close to the truth. That looks very godly. It says that his his ministers are ministers of righteousness. And it says that he's transformed as an angel of light. See, if Satan, if Satan looks like the opposite of God, then everybody knows he's Satan. Right? Satan doesn't doesn't want to look like the opposite of God. he wants to look as close to God as, as he can. And you see here the Prince of Tyrus, in all of his wisdom, what does he do what's the state of his heart? He says, "I am a God, I sit in the seat of God. You see he because of that safety and that security that he had and those riches that he had amassed and the power that he had. He says, look, I'm, I'm God. Nobody can defeat me. Nobody's wiser than me. Nobody's better than me. He, he essentially commits the same sin that Satan committed originally when he fell. And he says, I am God. He says, I, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. As he, as he looked out at those seas that surrounded that island, that was his safety and his security. Right? And... And uh, you see, he he says that he set his heart as the heart of God. And you know, that's what the wisdom of man does. That when the Bible describes the wisdom of man, you know, a lot of people in their natural state don't like the Bible because the Bible is negative toward man and it's positive toward God, right? The Bible Bible extols the, the virtues of God and the attributes of God, and the Bible says you know, what, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The, the Bible shows, shows the truth of who man is. Now, you know, man likes to think that we can do these great and mighty things. And certainly in the relative sense, there are, there are great things that men can do in comparison to other men. Right? But when you compare man's greatest accomplishments with what God has done, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. But, but man likes to lift himself up in his wisdom, and he likes to, to present himself really as being as powerful as God. And, and here, as, as God is speaking to the Prince of Tyre, there's, there's almost a, a little bit of, of sarcasm in the tone here when he says in verse 3, Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. You know, Daniel is one of the men in the Bible that is presented as being, being one of these very, very wise men. And, uh, you know, certainly, certainly in the objective sense, the prince of Tyrus, you know, if you were to compare the prince of Tyrus with Daniel by any kind of godly standard, Daniel would be much wiser than the prince of Tyrus. But God is addressing the prince of Tyrus in the way he thinks of himself. Right? And and there's almost some sarcasm there in the tone as God says, You are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. There's no secret that they can hide from thee. Go over to, go over to Romans chapter one and just notice what the Apostle Paul writes here about the wisdom of man. Romans chapter one, verse twenty one. You want to understand why the world is the way it is? Read these verses here in Romans chapter 1. It'll explain it for you. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And it describes in the rest of the passage how God gave them up. And and it even says there that, um, in verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You know, Beliefs have consequences, and what people believe affect what they do. And God here says to, to the Gentile world, really, historically, here Romans one is describing the kind of the degradation that took place after the fall. Uh, in those opening chapters of, of the book of Genesis, the point his, historically where God gave up the Gentiles as it describes here really is at the, the Tower of Babel and then with the call of Abraham and he starts to raise up this new nation, right? But but the same process as is described here takes place over and over again in in history. And God says, look, if you don't want to retain me in your knowledge, if you don't want to know anything about me, okay. Go, go your way. He gives them over to it. But there's some consequences to that. Right? There's consequences to, to rejecting the Word of God. There's consequences to things like, rather than believing that we're the, the special creation of a personal God, to believe that everything just happens by chance, there's consequences to that. Right? If, if the creation is just here by chance, then nothing really has any meaning. There isn't really any right or wrong. If someone goes into a, to a, a school at Sandy Hook and kills a bunch of children, well, that's not really much different than fish in a pond that eat baby fish, right? What's, what's the difference? Uh, if, it, if it all just happened by chance, if we're just the product of uh, those things. But if the Bible is true and if God created man in his image and, and for a purpose, then there is right and wrong. Then there is... Purpose and meaning to things, and we have a responsibility to go and find out what that purpose and meaning is. Right? There's consequences to beliefs, and when man sets himself as God, man in his sinful state sets himself as God. Uh, it doesn't result in godliness; it results in wickedness. And and so here they profess themselves to be wise. Uh, you know what? You call somebody who professes they would be a professor. Right? And and you look out in the educational institutions of this world and there's a lot of professors that profess a lot of things. Some of the greatest foolishness in the world comes from very highly educated people out of you know, that are in, in universities and well respected. Uh, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. But the world looks at them and says, Oh, look how wise that man is. You know, they look at the, whatever, the degrees on the wall or, or whatever, and they say, Look how wise that man is. And God says, It's just it's foolishness. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Here again, you have this contrast between the. The wisdom of God. Actually, go to, go, to, um, go to 1 Corinthians 3, and let's look at a verse there, and then we'll turn back to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18, says, Let no man deceive himself. Well, what, what does Paul mean there? Don't deceive yourself about what? If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore let no man glory in men. For all things are yours. You see what he says? He says, if you think you're wise in the world, what you ought to do is become a fool in the eyes of the world that you may be truly wise. There's a, there's a mistake in thinking that the church can somehow impress the world to get them to believe in Christ. You know, this is what a lot of people's view of ministry is today. That the church has to in some way impress the world. We have to become so much like the world that they will look at us and honor us and respect us and think, Oh, you know, on that basis, I'm going I'm to believe in that truth. That's not what God says. Really, God says if you look wise to the world, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. You ought to look like a fool to the world to be truly wise. So you know, when, when you believe what you believe or you talk to people about what you believe and, you know, and they look down on that, that tells you, you know, you're, you're teaching the right thing. I suppose you could be teaching the wrong thing and have it be foolish too. But if you're teaching the right thing, it will look foolish to the world. If it looks wise to the world, um, you're, you're not teaching the truth or, or at least not teaching all of the truth. You see, he says, if somebody is... Wise in this world, uh, become a fool, you may be wise. To, to think that, um, that we are wise, like that Prince of Tyrus does, that's what he's talking about when he says, let no man deceive himself. See, that Prince of Tyrus in saying, I am God, and setting his heart as the heart of God, who he was deceiving was himself. And, and you know, usually people like that, they deceive themselves more than anybody else. Because the people around them, I mean, even, even in those ancient cultures where they might worship a king as God, uh, you know, there was, uh, oh, I, I'm sure there was always some degree of, of cognitive dissonance there. You know what that is? Cognitive dissonance. That's the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time and not to see the contradiction, right? And, and I'm sure when people were worshiping the king of Tyrus as God, uh, you know, they knew that he wasn't God, right? I mean, they knew that he was going to die someday. They knew he wasn't God. And yet they would worship him as God and, and, you know, hold those two contradictory things in their mind. But he said his heart is the heart of God. But, you know, you can't outsmart God. You can't, you can't be more wise than God is. Go back to First uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Here the Apostle Paul describes his own preaching in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, if that's all you knew, if you didn't know anything else in the world, if you didn't know anything else besides that, Jesus Christ and him crucified, you'd be better off than the, than the vast majority of the world. Now, you might have some, some problems in day-to-day life if you didn't know anything else except that, you know, uh, when your car breaks down or, or something like that. That's not to say there aren't useful things uh, to know in the world. But you see, as far as Paul's preaching goes, you see what he said. He said, I came and I just preached Christ and him crucified. And you see, that's, that's the message of the Bible. That's the message of the completed word of God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Jesus Christ, that God came and took on human flesh and took all of the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, upon himself. He became guilty for it in the sight of God and suffered the just punishment for that. That, that just amazes me. I mean, you, you think about, you know, there's all kinds of, of wickedness going on in the world. And, and, you know, things you hear in the news, it almost doesn't, doesn't even benefit you to listen to the news. Because, you know, all the terrible things going on in the world. And you think about, you know, some of these, these people have just done these terrible things and the punishment that they deserve. Imagine one man, the Lord Jesus Christ becoming guilty for all the wickedness that's been committed and will be committed in the world and to take that upon himself and not to suffer just the judgment of man you realize that you know a lot of times when when the cross is portrayed people focus on the the physical uh just just the physical punishment that Christ received but you realize there was something much more than that going on there Jesus Christ suffered the judgment of God on the cross of Calvary He suffered the judgment of God poured out without mixture, without any kind of of diluting of the just judgment of God. That's what Jesus Christ suffered on the cross of Calvary. And he didn't do it for his own sin. He didn't have any sin to pay for of his own, but he did it for us. He paid for our sin. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com.